Uh, hello, this is Calvin Pinnewell Jr. again, as always. This is uh, episode, please let me say it right, 314. Oh, man. Hold on, 13. Episode 15, sorry. Episode 15 of The Glory in Our Stories. Um, I recently turned 32, so um, I guess my mind is leaving first before everything else does. I was hoping that doesn't happen, but... Uh, yes, I did tell my age. Not ashamed of it, but I guess that's what comes with experiencing life. Uh, today, speaking of life and experiencing and um, this coming into your own, I am interviewing uh, the awesome, the great uh, James Aaron Snow. I met him a couple of years ago. We were actually both writing for the City Rag. I uh, didn't meet him face to face until we went to a Poetry Matters event uh, where we read um, pieces of our own, uh, not just to the general public, but to people who were actually on base uh, at the library here in Fort Gordon. And I remember seeing his name on the list of writers for the local newspaper, and I was like, who's, who's Aaron? And I, I remember meeting a girl named Aaron. So I thought it was maybe a female. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that pretty. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so when I when I finally met him, I was like, "Yo, this is a cool dude." And um, we started talking. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Aaron, Aaron is a very calm, uh, speaking man. Um, the type of person that you listen to, not that you hear, you actually listen. And Hanging out with him, getting to know him over the last few years, I realized that he has the potential to uh, pull out his gunslingers. Um, but he does it in a creative way. He doesn't do it offensively. Um, I realized that in society, if you receive opposition and you don't say anything, then it's borderline in agreement to what came your way. Um, Aaron defends, and not only does he defend himself, he, defend his, he defends his community, he defends Augusta, he defends, period. Um, I can honestly say that he's borderline a living Avenger, but in the, in the concept of making sure that everyone is treated uh, the same way. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get into this, uh, first of all. Um, Aaron, if you can, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your childhood, and um, pretty much about your past. Um, and I did the smart thing. I typed up notes because uh, <laughs> I know myself well enough um, to to definitely have something to reference to. Otherwise, it'll be forever. Yeah, this will be like a Lord of the Rings episode. You're like, <laughs> is this over? Is this the extras? No, we're still in the first scene. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, you know, one of the key things. Well, a couple of the key things for me is. Uh, both of my parents are retired military. Mm -hmm. And um, so even though I was born in Lake and Heath, England, and I was only there till about three years old. So even though I would like to lay claim to like really growing up or something in another country, uh, I don't, I just know um, as, a, as a kid, I lived overseas and then I came to the States. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the bulk of my childhood was in Southern States, living in Mississippi, uh, living in Georgia, going to school in Alabama and then Georgia, um, and then also attending 
conservative but charismatic churches. Mm. Uh, so Pentecostal, uh, as some label it, uh, where they believe in different gifts of the Holy Spirit. Again, very charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, which, you know, I have to tell people that because they wouldn't believe it even after I say it. But um, <laughs> So that's, that's the upbringing I came up in. Yeah. Um, thankfully, uh, again, two loving parents that still together st- always believed in me. Always told me that um, I could do anything I put my mind to. Uh, but also uh, learning, I learned how to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Because the, there was constantly a, a parent absent uh, because of deployment. So my father would be overseas for a year. My mother would be deployed somewhere for three months. Um, so that, that kind of taught me self-reliance. And it also taught me um, gender role equality. Uh, yeah. Because if if my mother was gone, it wasn't a woman's job to do dishes and laundry and groceries. It was, we need this stuff, we're going to get it done. Exactly. And when my father was gone, my mother was out there mowing the yard until I was old enough and raking the grass because it needed to be done. It was a matter of, you do what you need to do for your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thankful for that that lesson in my life now uh, in working with my wife and working with Tiffany, that we, just, we do what needs to be done. Um, it's not degrading or empowering. It's just what we got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thankful for that. Um, and I will mention just as a side note, my, I got to spend because of those deployments, um, weekends, a lot of weekends with my grandmother and a number of years with my great grandparents. So hearing the voice of someone that was almost 90 years old, share wisdom, uh, you know, hints of the great depression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are deep, deep wisdom secrets that came out of those conversations that I wish I could remember half of. I was just a kid running around, and he's talking to my father, and I overhear stuff, or he tells me something. And it, I don't know exactly what it means, but I know that it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm grateful because many people don't have that experience to know their great-grandparents. Um, so that's, I mean, that's me growing up. Until I just I left the house and ran wild. So. <laughs> I was uh, you said you wish you initially went to and he's you're currently in school now, and your um, first experience in college, how was that? Um, I went because at that point we were we had moved to uh, Georgia, Warner Robins for anybody that knows the state below Macon, um, so I went to Emmanuel College. Uh, because it was in-state, a lot cheaper. I had the Hope Grant, Pell Grant, and all that, Hope Scholarship. Um, so it's a Pentecostal holiness college. So it's basically what I grew up in without all the charisma and a lot more conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm 18. I've been under this upbringing my whole life. Uh, been told by my father I can't grow my hair out, can't dye my hair. I'm not getting anything pierced on my body. Don't even ask about tattoos. Um, and then I went to college uh, three and a half hours away, and I was a free man. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I, on the grand scheme of things, it wasn't anything bad or terrible. Uh, it was just being Im- immature and foolish, and it was just a little too much. Uh, my third semester, 
Dean called me into the office. He had a a three ring binder with my name on it. Wow. And uh, he he just started flipping through and reading stuff, just segments, you know. And then you did this, and then he said, "Uh, it's been a fun vacation, hasn't it?" I'm like, <laughs> yes, sir. He said, "Um, well, I was I was expelled." academic and disciplinary probation because I quit going to class my third semester mm-hmm. and um, and I had to call the hardest part was calling home because my father told me he said I go to work you go to school the moment you quit going to school you go to work mm-hmm. period yeah and I knew that meant um, that meant going to work with him because he had retired and took a um, fabrication job in a factory mm-hmm. um, after the military and that meant I was going to be on the assembly line. And uh, I just thought it was over. I thought, you know, I'd screwed it all up. But I actually got accepted back in on probation. That that fourth would have been the fourth semester. Mm-hmm. But I never went back. Um, I took a different path. Followed a friend to Pennsylvania. Ended up in Virginia to do my minister internship. And met Tiffany. Thank goodness. <laughs> Saved my life. Um, and somehow it all ended up here in the end, uh, 20 plus years later. Uh, here I am, finally back in school mm-hmm. as a sophomore, <laughs> um, sitting with kids 18 and 19 years old. But um, I now know what I want to do, where I'm headed, and I just need the education on how to do it, and I need the education to validify that I can't do it. Yeah. So... That's why I'm just trying to go at it as hard as I can, get it behind me, and move forward. Now, these kids in the classroom, of course, I call them kids now because I'm pretty much almost twice their age. Um, do you see yourself in them as far as their mannerisms and how they view education now and their interaction with the class and what needs to be done? Like, how, do you, how do you view younger individuals that were your age at one point in time, but seeing that you've acquired so much experience and wisdom in comparison to where they're at right now? Um, I mean, I, I see some, like like in my biology class, that I could care less about. Um, <laughs> you know, when you don't like a class at that age, you're like, I hate this class, and you're verbal about it. At my age, I'm like, I don't like this class. I'm just going to keep that to myself because that's a smart thing. Professor doesn't need to hear it. Students don't need to hear it. I'm just going to muscle through the class. Yeah. Uh, so these young students are like, oh, I can't stand this class or that. I'm like, yeah, I was, I was there at one point. Uh, I don't understand, like, some of them, just the, the overall disrespect, like talking in class, yeah. uh, constantly coming in late. Like, that's a disrespect to your professor and to education in general. And that... I came in, no matter how foolish I was, there was always respect when I walked into the classroom mm-hmm. because they were my elder, they were my superior knowledge, I was there to learn, they were there to teach, and that much I knew, no matter how young I was. <laughs> so some of them, I'm like, I don't know, what are, what are y'all doing? Um, but, you know, I'm there to learn, you know, I'm not there to, to parent anybody yet. If need be, I'll step up. If it takes this, I remember um, taking a algebra, college algebra class, and there was just a few um, African Americans in that classroom, and I knew that this kid he had been a freshman, like he it looked like he literally just stepped out of high school 
caught the bus to college. Like, that's how fresh she was. And he was very loud and disruptive. And the, our, prof- our professor was a, a young a white lady. Um, I never forget her because she used candy as an um, incentive to learn more. And it's because of her I passed that class. Because I went to her doing class, I mean, doing um, um, office hours. And I would work with her. And she was like, you want some candy? So, yeah, she would open a drawer and she would give it to me. But this young man throughout the, a few classes was just very disruptive. And we're, we'll get to this later. This, like, behind, like, the undertone of all this mess. I don't think he understood how that made us look. And... In my mind, I was like, "You're, you're in college. Like, take like take that in. Like, just take that right there. And you are in college. And there's a song by uh, Lecrae called uh, Round of I think it's Round of Applause. Um, and he was talking about saying, um, "We ain't supposed to be here. Thank, thank God we made it. Round of Round of Applause." They thought we'd never make it or something, but he was basically saying we we beat the st- the statistics. Yeah. So I remember being younger, seeing somebody younger than me in school, and having a mindset that at that moment I became conscious. Um, but like I said, we get to that concept later. Um, for those of you who are listening, uh, recently, maybe a couple of months ago, um, Aaron was in a place in his life where he had so many books. That he had to give them away. Like, if you honestly, if you can't recall thinking, can you imagine having to go to somebody's house and shop for books? That's basically what me and a couple of other friends have done. Um, I like to refer to him, he doesn't know this, um, the man of 500 books. I know he's had more, but I couldn't just say an odd number because it wouldn't sound cool. Um, but the, he's he's acquired a lot of literary access um, to the point that I can honestly say that if you have a certain question about something, he can do two things for you. He can either answer it himself or point to the person who can. It's, it's usually n- nine times out of five, he's not going to say, I don't know. And that's very, that's a very impressive characteristic. And I've always admired that. So my question and it's going to lead back to the initial questions that we had. What got you into reading? Um, again, you know, this is, and we'll, I, I know we're going to end up there, but um, this is where my upbringing uh, breeds responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my parents had, had a goal that they would read, one of them would read to me at least 30 minutes every night before I went to bed like as young as I can remember until the moment I started reading myself mm-hmm. every evening Sunday night after service you know three four hours I mean it did not matter every evening it was at least 30 minutes of reading sometimes it was um, we. my mother had this multi children's bible thing mm-hmm. where you went from Genesis to Revelations uh Peter Cottontail, just wheels on the bus. I mean, it was it was a variety, but we were going to read, and it was to the point to where, like the smaller books, I could quote them along with her, mm-hmm. because I, 
I remember the cadence and I recognized the, the visual, the page. So I wasn't reading. I had no idea what those words were, but I could read along with her because mm-hmm. I'd heard it so many times. And so every night there were books on the weekends. Um, and to this day, I need to do it more, but like it was Friday night and most people are like, let's go to a movie. Now it's, you know, let's binge on Netflix. Let's watch, <laughs> you know, everything that I haven't watched all week. It was like, okay, now we have the weekend. And, you know, especially both of my parents were home at that point, And they would sit for hours yeah. on a Friday and Saturday night. And everyone, someone was on the sofa, someone in the recliner. I'm chilling, you know, somewhere. And we're just reading for hours. There's nothing on in the house except the lights. And we're just reading. And occasionally, like, my father would mention a quote from the book. My mother would be like, oh, this is really good. And, I, and that was the norm. That was the normalcy that I grew up in. And I took a break. Middle school, we got a little more money in the house, <laughs> and we got cable, and I discovered VH1, MTV, BET at their prime. Mm-hmm. And I already loved music at that point, so that was, I, was, I was a junkie. I subscribed to Rolling Stone. I mean, I was like, that was my life. I quit reading for a number of years. Yeah. Uh, but then as I progressed back into college, um, and then on my own for like the internship, I had to read 19 books in a year. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of bred the habit back, kind of rebirthed it. Yeah. And from that point, I knew, especially not having a degree, I knew that this was my ticket, that this was my my chair at the table, that when everyone said, well, I have this degree or I have this education, like I said, I don't have that, but I have some knowledge. Mm-hmm. I know this much. Or, um, as you stated, I can at least refer you to, why don't you read this? Or why don't you follow this author? And I had to educate myself. So, without that upbringing, I mean, I could probably tell you everything that's on Netflix. (laughs) I mean, and I, yeah, you wouldn't have to worry about getting books in my house. I mean, I just, I literally have bought a book almost every week now for a month, and I'm supposed to quit. I'm trying to quit. They need to have a support group for for uh, bibliophilia, just so I can quit books for a little while. Maybe I need to fast for a little while. <laughs> it's funny you said about the time you spent with your parents because now the same the setting is the same, but the books are replaced by devices and phones, mm-hmm. and I saw that vividly, and I realized that some families. Like they literally, there's some people that set the rule like you can't have the phone at the table, you have to put it to the side, you have to force it. But in your experience, reading was was natural, but you had a hunger for it. Plus, this was during a time where obviously cell phones wasn't as as um as accessible as they are now. Well, they they weren't. I'm old enough they weren't around. But uh, especially, again, you know, my, my house, we didn't have that, that little packet you carried to the car and plugged in with you. We had the, the rotary or the little plastic button one that you pressed on the wall. So, yeah, it's, it's um, again, it was a, I realized the privilege and the benefit of that upbringing, the importance that my parents put on reading mm-hmm. constantly. But uh, both of them grew up that way as well. Yeah. Um, my father's side, um, minimal education, you know, some high school, middle school dropouts uh, in my family tree on that side. 
Um, but they they put emphasis on reading, and he would read. Uh, he he tells a story a hundred times, but one summer he read a whole dictionary. Wow. And my father has a very extensive vocabulary, but I at some point I learned that came from what he read. That yeah. he that he would read, and when he came to a word he didn't know, he would stop. He would look it up, then he would understand the context it was being used, and he would commit that to memory, and he would continue reading. So, so I was like, if I'm going to, when I got to the place later in life where I was writing, mm-hmm. I was like, if I'm going to do this without education and not sound like I have a two-semester <laughs> vocabulary, I'm going to need to read to expand my abilities. Yeah. The, your vocabulary is, for a poet or any writer mm-hmm. is the tools, you know, one of the tools in your tool belt mm-hmm. that you say, okay... I know I know this word. I know how to personify that or or allegorize that. You know, it just you you have to have something to pull from in order to present. And I, I was like, I don't want to limit myself like that. So, but I've never read a dictionary front to back. Don't ever plan on it unless I'm just in the hospital for some odd reason and there is no other book at my disposal. <laughs> so, what would um, speaking going back to the having something that's highly beneficial to the construction of poetry. What got you into writing? Um, initially, uh, initially I was taking, I was taking poetry uh, in English class. You know, it's like every sophomore, I think it was sophomore year, you have one section of poetry. You know, you just, you cover all the big ones and you work your way from Shakespeare and Homer Ford and um, so I came back from break and we were having to write poems in class like pretty much every day just as a practice and I, th- I got to the door break was over teacher wasn't there and the door was locked and so I was like well if I write a poem now about the door being locked <laughs> then I want to write it in class and so the title of the poem was the door is locked and uh, as I've said repeatedly especially in working with um, certain students in Richmond County I'm like if the title tells the whole poem you need to find another title because <laughs> I'm basically telling you the whole poem you don't need to read the poem you know what the poem's about oh okay so the door's locked alright next, next I mean <laughs> it was I don't know I hope I don't have a copy of it but I have a feeling I do because I have everything I've ever written somewhere mm-hmm. but it it is I do know it's the worst poem ever written by mankind <laughs> it should not be in any library ever but I wrote it and I went home and I kept writing and uh, I saw something and I wrote I wrote something else and I wrote about sloppy joes mm-hmm. and I wrote about toilet paper and I just kept writing and then these two guys that I knew from class said hey we we play music every day at lunch we play both lunch periods there are only two in our school Mm-hmm. And we, we want to do intermission so we can actually go eat some lunch during our concerts that we do every day. Would you do like a 15-minute intermission so we can go grab some food and come back? And that was, that was kind of the initial um, validity to my writing. You yeah. know? And it was, again, it was nonsense. And uh, it was just garbage at that point. But <laughs> I'm reading. And like, so like I had, a, I had a friend, I had others, that um, the Sloppy Joe poem 
they like they want to hear it every day. They just thought it was <laughs> hilarious about sloppy joes, and so there was that there was that uh, anticipation of me coming out there, and you know just the the satisfaction of like they're they're actually expecting something from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I had a teacher that that supported as well. He's like, just keep writing, read other poets, find your voice, keep writing, mm-hmm. and um, and so I wrote. I went to college. Back then, email was the main communicator. So people, I don't even know how I grew the list, but I started an email list. Every morning, I sent a poem to the email list. Every day. And uh, most days, funny or humorous or whatever, uh, observant. And then some days it was serious. Because I I had, you know, college is tough. You get depressed, you're missing home. And so there were poems that were a little more on that side of it. Um, as, as a Christian with my faith and it, you know that space dealing with doubt and so there were poems that were a little more heavy weightier and there were students that would respond to that and they would like see me on campus because they were all on campus um, and they were like you know that, that really connected with me mm-hmm. and I realized I wasn't just writing like for people or writing to people I was writing for them but I was writing what was in me that was coming out it was it was connecting and they were responding to that and they were like I, I'm there and all of a sudden I realized I wasn't alone yeah. I was like you know maybe what I have to say carries weight not just because I'm carrying these thoughts these doubts these worries but because other people need to hear someone say it first yeah. and uh, that became that has become a theme throughout my life up until the present that um, somebody well everybody is waiting on someone to say it first yeah and uh, I am finding more and more that I'm that person so um, so I, I take it I, I take it with great responsibility not just to put stuff out there I need to put down poetry that is real because yeah. somebody's going to respond and say I know I know what that's like um so it's sometimes it's scary though, but <laughs> but that is that is the validity of um and I and I will say, I took some time off, you know, just as an encouragement to any writer or any artist, I took time off because I was around uh, people, who who saw poetry as emasculating, and um, were like you know they thought oh you got a little cigarillo and a hat and people snap and you're wearing a black turtleneck. And I, um, I succumbed to that. And I, I wrote for newsletters, like for the church. I wrote poetry for Tiffany, mm-hmm. for birthdays, anniversary, whatever. But I didn't write publicly for that. Yeah. And um, about three years ago, uh, Poetry Matters had an open mic happening in Columbia County at the library on a Friday night. Somehow I found out about it. And the day of had a bad day had just a terrible day. I'm like, I'm not going. Tiffany, and this is how long it had been. We'd been married at that point, so three years ago would have been 12 years. Mm-hmm. We'd been married 12 years, known each other a couple years before that. She had never heard me read poetry out loud. Mm. And um, she was like, you've been excited about this for weeks, and I wanna hear you. Like, I wanna hear you read something and so I brought three pieces to the mic. Mm. And, um, and the last one, and I didn't tell it because I knew better, but the last piece <laughs> was about her. 
and uh, and she's not very emotional, but she said that like how that moved me. Like I almost almost shed a tear, but I was because we were in a public setting, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And she said, "You are good at this," um, and she she has encouraged me from that point forward. She's like, "You you have a gift," and you need to keep in even after that there were times where I'm, I would ask her I'm like do you do you really think I should write uh, because when you write sometimes and nobody responds yeah. and sometimes you write and people tell you it's, it's terrible or they tell you you don't know what you're talking about or you don't have the experience or um, you know whatever sometimes they just make stuff up and I'm like am I really a writer or am I just doing something that I had fun with in high school and college and again, uh, her and others have encouraged it from that point forward. And so that has spurred me in the direction I'm going, though it's not directly poetry, but the writing avenue for what I need to do with my life. So I am grateful for all of that. Having that mindset of this has to be said, I didn't come to that conclusion until a couple of years ago. And I was in a classroom with a lot of people who are not comfortable with being candid about their work. And I would hear their stories, bits, bits and pieces. And I'm like, why don't you put that in there? You know, and they're like, no, that's, I'd be too vulnerable. And I'm like, you're surrounded by so many different people who think they're by themselves. And they don't know that um, somebody across from them is not only maybe experiencing the same thing or, or have and like still at the bottom and they don't see any source of, any chance of light. They need somebody to know, hey, I've been where you are and I've come out the other side. Or I am where you are and trust me, I know this sucks. So I'm gonna I'm a write about it and bam, here it is. And as a fellow writer, I highly appreciate that because a lot of things that you've written, in my mind, I'm like, somebody needed to say this. Somebody really did. And I've read, I've read some of your stuff, a lot of your stuff. I know it's a lot of. I'm just waiting on your on your book, obviously, um, one of many, which I know will be will happen. Um, I've I've read it and I was like, man, this your style. Um, if those of you who are listening, it's it's very warming, but it packs a punch, and it's it's man, it's hard to describe. Um, I could personify it in some way. I'm not gonna try for sake of time, but it's it, it it invites you in, but at the same time it's telling you something that you need to know. But it's very difficult to draw away from it because it's so um complimenting to the ear. So a lot of things your tone is very mellow. But it's just somebody you don't want to really mess with. You know, it's like that one person in the bar that's, that stays to themselves and maybe has like one drink. And you're like, oh, man, ain't going to do nothing. But you mess with him and he's like, he knows Taekwondo or he knows something. And you're like, you know what? I shouldn't have I should have kept my mouth shut. So I highly appreciate that um, as, a, as a fellow artist and writer. I appreciate you doing that. Um, Another question I would like to, to ask is, have you ever, and I think I've asked you this before, is there anything that you find it very difficult to write about? 
Um, I it probably, I mean, it's probably dealing with issues that aren't just me or aren't just societal, mm-hmm. but that are my family. Yeah. Um, like when, you know, I wrote about Tiffany and I dealing with the topic of infertility and dealing mm-hmm. with that. And, um, for anyone that's in a relationship and writing, get permission. Uh, ask them. If you respect them, ask them before you publish that kind of stuff. But I asked her, I said, um, I, and she said, I want to read it first. Mm-hmm. But I, I said, I feel that I need to tell my side of it because I feel there are a lot of men that are, are staying silent, that are saying, I feel this way, but I'm probably the only one. Or because I'm consoling my wife and because so many others are consoling the the would-be mother, yeah. that the man's just kind of in the shadow. And I said, I, I need to write this. And um, and I and I wrote that I wrote that whole piece, and that was the blog first, and then the poem. And when I I wrote the first rough draft of the blog, um, probably about midway, is when I just I just broke, and I wrote I was literally typing the rest of it with tears, mm-hmm. um, because it's again it's not it's not just me you know I have my own struggles, um, my own you know anxiety and other things that I deal with. I get frustrated with injustice in society, mm-hmm. but I, I can just speak to that. But then, when I I write a poem to my sister when she graduated high school years ago, giving her advice, saying this is what life is going to be like. Uh, when I write, speaking of you know, us as a couple dealing walking through this valley, mm-hmm. um, and coming out of uh, infertility, but still, you know it's. It's never a mountain top. It's just still a mountain climbing. Mm-hmm. That's that's when it's hard, um, because it, you're put you are putting yourself on the out on the on the stage for for people to throw rocks or tomatoes or whatever. But again, I honestly am not as that concerned, especially at this point in life, about what other people are gonna say. Um, I want people that feel that way to respond, mm-hmm. but just to say it it. It is, it is, it is hard, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm carrying my weight and the weight of at least one other person. You know, if um, if someone uh, when my grandmother passed away last year, that because I was carrying my weight, but then in the back of my head I was thinking about my father, mm-hmm. and what it was like two years ago to lose his biological father, who was distant from for many years, and now his mother, who's been close to his whole life. That that's the hard stuff. Like that's the hard stuff. Um, man, just there there are times, and I have to be alone when I write that stuff. Um, there's occasionally, you know, a little something in the glass to help me write that <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, in the low ball, but it that's yeah, that's the heavy stuff. Everything else, when it's just me, that's just me. Yeah. So here it is. Take it or leave it. Um, if it's injustice, I won't say it. You need to hear it. So, um, and that's that's probably, as an aside, like when I I write, you know, I I am learning more and more. I there's a lot I want to say in life, mm-hmm. just personally. And there's a lot to different things in society, but I want to write, want to write what needs to be heard. And that's where whenever I come back to the editing process, I'm like, okay. 
I know I want to say all this because I typed it up. Yeah. But what needs to be heard? And that's, that's how I start cutting away. Because I don't want what I want to say to ever cause someone else to stumble or turn a deaf ear to what they need to hear. Um, and that's why I do a lot of storytelling in my work. Because a lot of people can connect to the story. Mm-hmm. And even if they disagree with the message, the core theme of what I'm talking about, they're like, but I'm still going to hear what you got to say because I know what this is like. Or I can I can feel what that's like because you've, you've explained it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have to kind of get myself more and more out of the picture. So probably the more I do that, the better the writing will get. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see in the next 10, 20 years. <laughs> um, well, probably by then you'll. For those of you who probably don't know Aaron, looks a lot like. Never met him, but when I do, I will. I won't. I won't shake his hand. I give him a hug. Looks just like his father. And when I saw that, I was like, you know what, man? I know exactly how that feels. That was a photo of y'all were in the uh, kitchen, and he had gloves on. He was at the oven. And you was talking to you, and the way he was standing, and the way he, I was like, "Yep." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there has never been any denying. Like, we don't need Maury or anybody to do a DNA <laughs> test. Like, yeah, it, the gray is coming, the balding, the balding's slowing down, thankfully, but it's it's coming, um, and that's why that's why Tiffany kind of helps me because my father. My father has a lot of words in his head as well and a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. And so Tiffany has kind of been proactive. She's like, instead of letting you get to where you can like go on for two hours without interruption, I'm going to start like, giving you the nut and say, all right, let somebody else talk. <laughs> she's, she's, she's helping me. She's helping me there. Because I, you know, I don't want you, like in 20 years, we're getting together for coffee or something. And it's like, you know, how, how was coffee with Calvin? Well... You know, I talked for two hours. She, I should have came. You know, <laughs> I should have been there to nudge you, because I know how you are. Um, so, yeah. And, but the physical, and you know, there were times, uh, even, you know, we may not have ever really touched on, but even in a good relationship that I have with my parents, you know, I was still a teenage boy. Mm-hmm. I was still mad that he was gone sometimes because of the military. Yeah. Um, I did not take into account knowing. His biological father left when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, like, ignore him. I wouldn't talk to him, like, all the way home from work when I worked in the factory in the summers. We'd ride all the way home for 45 minutes. I wouldn't say a word to him. I'd just totally um, ignore him and blow him off. And people would be like, oh, you know, you must be Steve's son. You know, they'd walk through the factory and see me. Oh, that's got to be, you know. <laughs> and I would get so angry. I'd be like, no. I just want to be more in person, uh, yeah. but now, now I'm at the place that I understand that that no matter what, good or bad, like you are the fruit of. Yeah. And so you you glean any and all that you can, and then you just continue to grow forward in that identity. Um, but it, my my father, my father's the the most uh, caring, quiet, humble man. Mm-hmm. But uh, dear Lord, if you get him angry. He will no. He, see, I get I get calm and angry. Mm-hmm. He just gets angry and angry. Like, he <laughs> just goes off. He'll get mad at Cracker Barrel because they took his butter. 
Oh, he get mad when they cut him off in the parking lot. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> Maybe that's my underlying frustrations. So in the transition of David Banner, I guess your dad is the Hulk, and you're like, you only get to the part where the clothes start ripping. But yeah. I think your dad is actually go full fledged. He's throwing <laughs> cars and middle fingers, and um, he'll t- there are more than once in my life he's just had to straight up apologize, be like, son. I shouldn't have said that to that person that just cut us off. I shouldn't have said this. Um, and I, and I, honestly, I'm I am glad to have seen that because like he 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 was and he may still be a deacon in church. Uh, he puts a a bottle of water on the pulpit for the pastor every Sunday, just because. Like he just he makes sure the pastor has water while he's preaching. Um, he's just a caring man, and. But to see on the other spectrum, you know, someone takes his parking spot, he just goes off, and then he's like, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it might have been a day before he said I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but uh, I realized that, you know, we're, he wasn't perfect. Yeah. There was, there was no, no superhero complex with him. He just was who he was, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And um, and that, that made me a better man. But in my times of doubt, in my faith... Uh, that also made me realize that, that God was never looking for perfection in me. Yeah. Um, that he's just looking for me to be real because he can work with that. Mm-hmm. It's when we start putting an affront on that he's like, okay, I, I can't do nothing with that. You just come talk to me when you're ready to surrender, you know, <laughs> to be authentic. Then I can I can help you out. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. You'll see him one day. You got to get him up this way and meet you, meet everybody. And, um, I remember, well, it's funny you mentioned those qualities about the, him because you, you, that's you. Um, for those of you who are listening, uh, recently, for my birthday, um, Aaron didn't give me uh, a watch. He didn't give me uh, a gift card. He didn't give me a card. He didn't give me um, anything dealing with electronics. He gave me a mason jar of apple butter. Not just any apple butter, but this was actually this actually came from Virginia. Is that right? Uh, this one was from West Virginia. But West, yeah, West Virginia. And um, when when I saw it, I kid you not, I, I I was as giddy as a child. And the reason being is because you asked the question, "Who gives people apple butter for their birthday?" The answer to that question, nobody. Which made it authentic, and. That's that's the type of person that that you are and that you've always been since I first met you. And um, I remember first meeting uh, Tiffany. I was like, so if Aaron is this way, I can only imagine how awesome his wife has to be. And the cool thing about her is she just has this this calming personality. And y'all, I'm like, wow. To be able to live life and find someone that caters to you like that that's one thing I'm looking forward to in marriage is is having that 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 fit, and you all to have been together fifteen years mm-hmm. that's um that deserves a lot of praise, especially now where the constitution of marriage is like it, it's it's broken and but there's still bits and pieces there of people who actually believe in the constitution of marriage, not just the constitution of marriage in like in America but the mar- the way marriage the way God created it to be. And it's 
is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It takes it takes um, you know, it takes work. Uh, we were talking, you know, because I, you know, I I have a I have a legal commitment to mm-hmm. her. Uh, again, as a Christian, I have a spiritual commitment to be faithful to her. Uh, but you, when you work, when you work to a place, and you say your vows, and you're like, yeah, I, I love someone so much, you know, spend the rest of our life together. You know, at some point, you've got to put the words into action, and and to work and to work year after year, day after day, get to the point to where now, if if marriage legally wasn't nullified, if Christianity was just, you know. Considered, you know, a, a hate religion or a hate group, and all that was taken away, and I didn't have any obligation in those realms. I love her enough. My commitment is to her and to her alone, um, and to get to that place for us is a success mm-hmm. that we're committed to one another solely and for the rest of our life because we love each other that much. Um, and again, that's not something that comes without work. Yeah. That's not something that comes without um, trial, and that is that's why we find the light in those hard times, mm-hmm. uh, infertility and uh, other other trials we've been through that have strengthened us. Because, I mean, we still would be married or you know wherever along in our relationship and marriage, but it wouldn't be where it is. I we honestly believe that we hadn't have been through that, if we haven't fought those battles, won those victories together, that we wouldn't be as committed. Yeah. Um, so in the middle of it, you don't, you're like, no, I don't want this. Uh, <laughs> but looking back, you're like, yeah, I wouldn't change that. I yeah. wouldn't change it because it brought us where we are. And, and I tell her all the time, I'm like, as long as I have you, you know, I can lose uh, as much as it would hurt if I lose my family, if I lose my friends, lose job, lose whatever I put my identity in mm-hmm. outside of her. As long as I got her, we can go anywhere, do whatever. I'm good. We'll make it. Yeah. It might not be easy, but we'll make it. Um, and, and I believe that 100%. You think it'd still be the same without the cats? Well, it depends <laughs> on like, you know, whether or not they get on my nerves, wake me up in the middle of the night, then maybe without the cats. <laughs> Um, since I got about a couple of minutes, I'm gonna say this and then we'll end it there. Um, but you, it will lead into the last two questions, which I really didn't get to, but I know you can work them in. Um, I'll say this, um, Aaron and Michael Denny, that's that's how you pronounce his last name. <laughs> I like public enemies when it comes to <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> Man, I've never had, never known anyone personally that have gotten so much backlash on you all's posts and what you what you say. They've lost friends, they've lost family, um, you name it, and all because they refuse to stand back while certain demographics receive injustice, especially when it's in the mainstream, especially when it's plastered all over the media, especially when people are ignoring um, how valuable, like the, the, how vital this is. 
And I highly, like, I actually sat back. And I, I don't mind saying this. As a black man, I highly thank you all for being sacrificial in that sense. Because you all could easily sit back and literally sit on your inherited privilege that this world has given you. And she's like, man, I don't, I don't see anything wrong. I mean, you have the same opportunities I have. I mean, you can go to college like I did. You can have a family. You can vote. And, but for somebody to actually acknowledge it and be like the freedom fighters, be on our side. And that's, that's very encouraging. Because I went to the, the museum and the Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And they had that wall completely covered of everyone that got arrested. Every other face was a white individual. Wasn't completely black. And they actually had people photos of people armed, linked, armed and armed. White, black, white, black, white, black. And everybody was fighting for one cause. And I highly, highly appreciate that from you guys. I know y'all, you, I think y'all get more upset than we do, <laughs> but I, I, I highly appreciate that. And I, and I guess the question to end this would be, what is causing you, you all, both of you and many others to be consistent with making sure that, that justice is, it, it is reached for, if not fully acquired or obtained? Um, and I, I mean, I know some of, of Michael's uh, reasons and experiences and stuff, um, but you know, I, would, I, I guess I would, I would never want to like speak to the core of what, yeah. but uh, it's probably I would say it's more likely the same, but um, at at the core of of why I do what I do, why I feel what I feel, say what I say, um. Even sometimes when it gets a little further than it should be, uh, at the core of it is is my face. Um, when when I was before here, I, I came to Tennessee. I was working with middle school youth in the church, church kids, the stereotypical like if you've been in church at any point in life, the church kids. That's all they know. That's their bubble. Mm-hmm. And it's safe, and quite honestly, it was. white at that church and uh, through a series of events we got connected to a boys and girls club and um, boys and girls club no matter where you're at unless it's really rural areas in certain states um, it's it's predominantly people of color children and teenagers of color even staff um, unless it's leadership which is Mm -hmm. grave injustice and so all of a sudden I began to be exposed to situations um i i left the first time i went i went by myself and the assistant director walked me through Mm -hmm. and he told me um a story about a little girl who was wearing a bathing suit as underwear because she didn't have underwear and he told me about uh, this other kid they found out was eating cereal for supper because that's all they had and all of a sudden my church bubble burst (laughs) and i went to the car and I wept, and I was like, God, I, I don't know what's, what I'm doing here. I don't know what's going on, but if you'll help me and teach me, I want to do something about this. And my faith, everything I'd read in the Bible, everything I'd been taught as a kid, every sermon that dealt with you know, God is a God of justice, God is a God of love, 
and everything in Matthew 15 that brings us back to, you know, if you've done this unto me, um, all of a sudden it came to light, and I was like, wait, this is, this is, this is it, mm -hmm. you know, he said, you know, we're supposed to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, and he said, we, we're supposed to do that work, and all of a sudden I started working with the homeless shelter, and um, the Salvation Army, and just one thing after another, and I got more and more outside of the church. Mm -hmm. But I began to realize that the more I was outside of the church, and the more I served God outside the church, the more my faith grew, because my my faith was put to the test. Mm -hmm. Because I had parents that were angry that I didn't give them enough free food, or I didn't put gas in the car. You know, taking advantage of me. I mean, you know, that's there are times where it's not being taken advantage of and there are times where there are and I was they would still get upset but to be patient enough to, to apologize and to, to stand down and say you know what I, I want to make this right because you getting upset at me is not the issue the issue is the daily struggle you're dealing with with your finances and abusive person in the house and lack of food and rebellious kids and if I'm ever going to bring Christ to those needs I've got to work through this first yeah and so that that is has always been my faith coming to life more and more and more uh, here working with the homeless ministry downtown starting something in south augusta the first couple of years i was here and 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 now you know and people that probably have just got to know me the last couple of years are like all these concerned about this is race you know race uh, racial reconciliation racism and um but that's just because I've learned at the end of the day that the more you read about any injustice in this country, at the root of it is racism and or the effects of. Mm -hmm. And so God has called me to speak to that to that foundation and say this is unbiblical. And it's it's frustrating. And I do know for me and Michael that frustration comes out of seeing it exemplified in the church. The place where the Bible should be lived out the most is where both of us have experienced it lived out the least. And that is frustrating. And it's frustrating to see in European-American Christians and European-American pastors who will even speak out of one side and say, let's make things right and let's, let's be humble and apologize and then with their, their hands and feet go and do something else. That that's enraging. That's that is frustrating. That will make, that will make me go full Holocaust alive. <laughs> um, and so I, I'm learning that balance. But um, it it is it, it's my faith. My my faith is the core because that's the standard. The gospel is the standard that we seek for. Um, so that's that's it. That's the heart of it. Well, thank you, uh, Aaron, for your time. Uh, again, we could, uh, Aaron and I could speak all day, but we have uh, responsibilities. Uh, if Tiffany was here, she would definitely let us both know it was time to go. So, <laughs> uh, whenever we are speaking out in public, uh, my girlfriend Adrian is usually looking at me, or uh, she's slightly pulling my arm, and Tiffany's doing the same with with Aaron. We're like, um, not sure if y'all remember the scene and um, super bad at the end where it's they're both about to go to college and they're at the top of the escalator 
and one is going down with one girl and the other one's going up with the other one and they're looking at each other like they realize this this is this is happening this is what's going to happen like it's it's inevitable like we're always going to be friends but things are changing so but um i can honestly say he's my uh, brother from another mother of a different color and um we end up sometimes dressing the same and we're all usually always on the same page i've i've yet to meet somebody like that and he's he has this concept this mindset of forward movement um helping the community as much as he possibly can and he's he's always on it He's first one to usually send me at least five different articles per day. Um, and it's not something that he just randomly sees. He reads them and then he shoots them because there's always something that you can, you can take out of it. Um, he's not the type of person that believes in everything that's on Facebook. He goes to the source. This is coming from a, a literary a man who, who actually takes the time to read and dissect the literature. And that's something that needs to be um, practiced as well as um, reiterate it, knowing that we need to get back to uh, the basis. But I, I highly appreciate him for always being honest, being straightforward, um, being willing to stand when others won't, being willing to take a knee when everybody stands for um, what's normal or what's acceptable. And having God, and not just God, but the gospel be the root of why you do what you do. So uh, I've met him and a, a lot of other Augustans that this city means a lot and you want to make sure that you do what's best for your house before you want to make change in the White House. And a lot of pastors, pastors who speak truthfully say everything starts at home and that's exactly what you're doing. So I really appreciate that. Um, if you all want to catch up with him, again, this is James Aaron Snow. You can catch him on Facebook. I know he's on Twitter, right? Yep, uh, on Instagram. Um, he has a blog. He has his work, his uh, pieces. And there's still remnants of his articles from when we both wrote from the City Rag. Um, I can share that as well if you're interested in the things that we uh, we created doing that that time so um again uh this is episode 15 uh this is the glory in our stories this is me calvin pinnawell uh in interviewing the awesome uh james aaron snow y'all have a good one